Well, if you'll uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, if you have a Bible with you, or maybe you've got one on your phone, um, and if not, you can listen in, and I'm going to read it to you. But um, it, you might want to keep it open if you do have a Bible, because we're going to be kind of looking at a few verses here and there uh, throughout the sermon. Um, so it's going to be John chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses um, 20 through 26. Uh, but before we read, um, <clears throat> it's a common misconception, but uh, Jesus was not assassinated. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, but see, you know, to be assassinated, really by definition of that word, that means you didn't choose to die. It's not something that you, you saw coming. Um, for example, Abraham Lincoln uh, didn't choose it. He certainly didn't see it coming. Uh, when John Wilkes Booth crept into that theater box. Or another example, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in a way, he sort of saw it coming, but he definitely didn't choose it. Um, after there was a, a bomb threat that delayed his flight to Memphis, um, Martin Luther King said this in a speech there. It was really fascinating. He said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. That's what he said. Um, Of course, he did end up getting to Memphis, but if he had seen it coming, of course, he wouldn't have stepped out onto that balcony of his hotel room on April 4th in 1968. But then there's Jesus. Jesus did see it coming. In fact, even though no one else around him saw it coming, he pointed out to them in minute detail exactly what was going to happen to him. This is what Jesus said. Now, this is in Matthew's gospel, but Jesus says to his disciples, look, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. You see with this detailed uh, precision, Jesus predicted the exact events that would lead to his death. But, and here's the point. The point is that he walked into it willingly. Jesus wasn't assassinated. He wasn't just a martyr who happened to be caught up in the gears of history. He willingly walked to his death, giving up his life as a sacrifice for us. And so when we, when we kind of take note of that, uh, it's a, with a little bit of concern that we then discover this unsettling truth. Where Christ has gone, with his eyes wide open, knowing what he was walking into, he now bids us as his disciples in a way to come follow him. Let's, let's hear from Jesus himself in John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Lord, uh, this is your word, and we pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts um, to hear from you, to be changed by your spirit, uh, maybe even in these moments uh, as we hear your word um, read and preached. And we pray that you'd be glorified in our lives and that you would fill our lives with joy, even in dying to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we're in the season of Lent. Um, and Lent is a, is a, is a time for uh, anticipating Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. Uh, it's a time of waiting. We're, we're awaiting, basically uh, looking forward to celebrating Easter, but also awaiting that future day of resurrection when he returns um, and puts all things to right. Um, and so in thinking about that, this passage struck me as, as a good place to focus our attention together. Um, so I invite, invite you to join me as we look at this passage, as we really kind of ask some questions of this passage, uh, especially of Jesus' call for us to follow him in dying, so that for the purpose of finding real and lasting life. Now, it's certainly true uh, that when Jesus died and was raised again, he defeated death. In a very real sense. But in order to get to the other side, so to speak, um, we kind of have to pass through this unavoidable invitation to die to ourselves. Um, you know, I almost thought about titling the sermon, uh, The Church That Dies Together Stays Together. But I was afraid that would scare any visitors off and they would start looking for us to pass out Kool-Aid or something. This is not a cult. Um, we're talking about spiritually dying to ourselves, so don't, don't worry. I want to put your mind at ease. Um, but uh, you've heard me quote this guy before. I'm really fond of quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, he was a German theologian and a pastor. He, he opened an underground seminary. Um, and was ultimately executed by the Nazis um, really only a couple weeks before the the end of World War II. But uh, his most famous book is The Cost of Discipleship. Um, If you've never read that, you're looking for a good um, book on just discipleship, Uh, we don't have many more weeks left in Lent, but it's a great book to read uh, during Lent or any time of year. I recommend it, The Cost of Discipleship. Um, But in there, he has this great line. And this is the line. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so that's what I want us to look at. Christ's call to come follow him and in a sense die. And I want us to ask three questions of that. Uh, Who is that call for? What does it mean? And why should we do it? So who, what, and why? Those are the three questions um, I'd like us to ask of this passage. Uh, But first, who? This call to follow Christ, to come and die. This call, who is it for? What's the extent uh, of Christ's call? It's not, it's helpful for us to see, it's really not a call that was just for his 12 apostles. It's not a call that's just for super Christians or for officers in the church. It turns out this is a, a universal call. This is a call, a gospel call that Jesus makes to the entire world. 
for the past three years up to this point, three years before this of Jesus' ministry, Jesus has continually said, my time has not come, my hour has not yet come. He would be asked to do a miracle or to heal someone. Um, maybe uh, at the, early in John, the first miracle we read there in John's gospel is Jesus is at a wedding feast. And he turns these big stone jars of water into 150 gallons of fine wine for a wedding feast. But he always prefaces these miracles by saying this, my, my hour, my time has not yet come. Um, and it seems that Jesus knew that the more public his ministry became, the more quickly the religious authorities um, would want to clamp down on what he's doing. He realized the more quickly they would hasten his crucifixion. And so that's what he means by my hour or my time. It means the the point at which he's going to complete his mission and give himself as a sacrifice for his people. Um, And so at this point, Jesus has been saying this all throughout three years of his earthly ministry. Now, he's, he's not saying this out of cowardice to try to, to avoid it, but so that his compassion could reach as many people as possible. He constantly is saying, my hour has not yet come. But now, all of a sudden, we come to hear verse 23, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what changed? What, what made the difference? Well, we can see it right here. Actually, if, again, if you have your Bible open, you can look back a couple verses earlier. In verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, Look, you see that we're gaining nothing. The whole world is going after him. And then look at verse 20 again. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, when it says Greeks, that doesn't mean literally people from Greece. That's... Um, a Jewish way of speaking of those who are Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were called God-fearers. These were non-Jewish people who were there in town uh, for the Passover uh, celebration. And so to this point, um, Jesus' ministry has been almost exclusively to the Jewish people. But now the nations are starting to come to him. These Gentiles are now, these outsiders are now coming and saying, hey, we want to see Jesus too. We want to talk with him. And so the Pharisees, in their exasperation, uh, their exaggeration, saying, look, the whole world is coming to him, in a sense, it's coming true. They, they spoke more, more rightly than they realized. And so it's important for us to understand that, of course, this was Jesus' plan from the very beginning, wasn't it? It was always his plan, uh, his kingdom mission, to extend that mission, that call, to the whole world. It was never just for, for Israel alone. And that mission was then passed on to his apostles in you know, what we know of as the, the Great Commission. Right? You've, you've heard that. If maybe you've grown up in church, you've heard about the Great Commission, where at the end of Matthew's Gospel, um, we read Jesus saying, I'm commissioning you, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Of all nations. And then you flip over to the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with that. Um, just as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus very intentionally founded an international church. And so now that, that great commission, um, in effect, is, is still in effect for us today, isn't it? 
to go to the nations with the gospel, with the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. In fact, it's for this reason that, that Pastor David is not here today. He is in Egypt helping to train pastors over there uh, so that the universal international gospel call can grow and flourish and go forward. And so that, that's the call, in a sense, for all of us. Um, and it's important for, for us to get that, that call to the nations, but that's not, that's not the sermon that I'm preaching today. Um, I'd like us actually instead to think about that that international gospel call from the other end, so to speak. Um, and what I mean is this. Unless you personally are a recent immigrant from Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria and, and ethnically Jewish, unless that's you, then that means you and I fall into that last category of the, the ends of the earth, which just... Taking a wild guess here, I know I don't want to make stereotypes, but I'm assuming that's probably the vast majority of us in this room. We are the ends of the earth. It's good to sit with that for a second. You know, a lot of us have grown up in the church. Um, If you're from the South, like I am, um, you're used to seeing churches on every corner, and we have maybe kind of unconsciously come to, uh, to assume that Christianity is just, you know, our natural heritage by right. Uh, We take it for granted that Christianity is something that we have here and something that people over there need, and we take it to them over there. But do you see how before it got here, we were the uttermost parts of the earth? Isn't God good? (laughs) Isn't God good that he saw to it that the good news of Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is nowhere near here. It's way on the other side of the world in the Middle East. It found its way all the way around the world to this foreign nation and to this strange little city known as Columbia, South Carolina. And the fact that you and I are sitting here today in a Christian worship service is proof that Jesus' prediction came true. Disciples making disciples. Making disciples. (laughs) Multiplying and spreading out from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So it's good to let that maybe humble us a little bit. Um, You know, as Americans, um, we tend to think that we're at the center of everything. And we like to assume that it was just a foregone conclusion that the gospel would would make its home here in the U.S. Um, And let's be honest, we like to assume uh, that's a foregone conclusion that we Christians here in America will always be the standard bearer for Christ's church in the world. It's not always necessarily the case. Um, And so it's good for us to be a little bit humbled. And in this way, to to die to ourselves, to die to our overinflated view of ourselves and our importance in Christ's kingdom. Um, And it's important and it's good to learn about the history of the global church in the past and to even have a realistic view about where the center of gravity has shifted in the global church today. Think about the past. For example... It's good for me to humble my heart and think about amazing figures in church history like Athanasius of Alexandria. Who's ever heard of Athanasius? (laughs) A few people. Um, He was a bishop um, in northern Africa during the 4th century. These were in the 300s. They're Alexandria, of course, you know, up there in kind of northern Egypt, right there on the Mediterranean. Athanasius became one of the greatest defenders 
of the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity that the church has ever seen. Um, and he had a lot of enemies. Uh, his enemies mocked him by calling him the black dwarf um, because you could probably guess he was short uh, and obviously he was a dark-skinned African. But he was a giant of the faith of the early church. And so it's good for me to remember that while my own, we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day, right? While my own Gaelic and Celtic ancestors were smearing blue paint on their faces and leaping over fires, Athanasius was writing huge books of theology and defending fearlessly the gospel. Um, And so I'm convinced that the Lord would have us to humble ourselves in that way. It's called really cultivating cultural humility, maybe. Realize that we in the U.S. aren't always or even often the center of the story that God is writing in the world. The story of Christ's global kingdom, which is growing and bearing fruit unhindered by opposition. And now we, you know, we, we look at our culture around us now. We look around kind of maybe where we came from. Uh, we compare it with maybe in some ways what used to be, and we might lament the decline uh, of Christianity here in the Western world, and, and it's true. Um, in North America and Europe, more and more people seem to be um, secularizing, this, you've heard about the rise of the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the, the people that when you know, people do surveys and ask what religion they would um, identify themselves with, there are more and more people who check the box, none of the above, the nuns. Um, and so we rightly uh, lament that, but that's really only half the story. The story is, in truth, and this is what sociologists and, and, um, and others are, are telling us, It's really only white Westerners who are secularizing. But the rest of the world's population is exploding, and that's where the gospel is actually growing by leaps and bounds like it never has before. This is actually an exciting moment uh, in the history of the church in spite of what we might see around us in our own culture. Um, And that includes uh, the gospels exploding among immigrants and other minorities here in the U.S., uh, a historian, Philip Jenkins, writes this. This is fascinating to me. He says, Over the last century, the center of gravity in the Christian world has shifted inexorably southward to Africa and Latin America. Today, the largest Christian communities on the planet are to be found in those regions. If we want to visualize a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela. So yes, the gospel is is growing. It's actually bearing fruit at unprecedented levels around the world. Even though we at home um, do see a decline around us. And so we need to pray about that. We need to humble ourselves, adjust to the fact that we maybe aren't at the center of the action anymore. Maybe it's good for us to be humbled and not be at the center of the action for a while, but pray, definitely, by all means, share the gospel. But in this, this small shift in our perspective, we can follow, I think, Christ's call for us to humble ourselves, to die to our, what may be sometimes a prideful view of ourselves here in America. All right, so that was a longer answer to the who question, and I promise the next two will be a little faster. But we've seen the answer to this who question, who is this call for, this gospel call it's for the whole world. 
It's for all of us. In fact, it's for even us sitting all the way over here in Columbia, South Carolina. So that brings us to the what question. What is the nature of this call? So what does it even mean, Christ's call to come and die? And our key verse here is verse 24. So I'll read it again for us. Jesus says, and I love this this visual image. He says, truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly two times in a row, that means pay attention. (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is the nature of this this call? In short, it, um, it begins at conversion, but it's going to continue day by day in the Christian life. The life of every disciple, every follower of Jesus, it ultimately begins in dying to self, right? That's what initial conversion, coming to trust Jesus, looks like in faith and repentance. It's when a person looks at their sin and they turn from that, and they turn from their claim of, of control over their own lives, however they see fit. And then turning from themselves, they turn toward Jesus. They see for the first time, they see him in all of his strength and his glory and his trustworthiness and in Jesus' beauty and in his love. That's what we call conversion, right? Coming to trust in Christ. Um, this is what, how Bonhoeffer put it back in, in that book I mentioned, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man, and we could add every woman too, uh, must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, so that's how we follow Christ's call to die to ourselves at the beginning of the Christian life, turning from ourselves, turning to Christ as the only source of, of true life, um, and this, by the way, is actually what he means in verse 25 when he talks about, um, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That might be kind of a head-scratcher, but what he's saying there is basically to love your life means that you jealously guard control over your life above all else. It means to basically to cling to yourself, to cling to your own life, uh, almost the way a, a desperate lover would cling to, to his or her beloved. But Jesus says, you know, to do that is really just ironic because to love your life in that way is, is ultimately just to lose it. Why is that? The reason is because you are not capable of providing for yourself the depths of, of rich life and love that you were made to crave. It's like stubbornly clinging to your own little bits of driftwood as you float towards a waterfall. You're made for more, and you're just not strong enough to support you. (laughs) Um, But Jesus says, on the other hand, if you hate your life, then you'll keep it for eternity. Now again, that hate doesn't mean to literal self-loathing. What Jesus means is that your vision 
uh, of this man, Jesus, is so compelling, so overwhelmingly attractive, that all your other relationships, your attachments to family and friends, and even your own plans for your life, all of that looks like hate in comparison to your love for him. So it starts in conversion, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't end there, does it? The life of a disciple, Jesus is teaching us here, it's, it's one of continual, daily, dying to self. And that's, that's really where the rubber meets the road, probably, for most of us here today. In Luke's gospel, Jesus put it this way. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, as, as believers, we've kind of been on this trajectory of learning to die since the day we were born again. Just learning to die more and more, to rely on Christ more than on ourselves, to follow him in obedience instead of just following our own selfish desires. Uh, that's what the Bible means when it talks about putting to death our old sinful nature. Um, it's, it's a daily struggle for every single Christian. Um, it, it's one of those things that, yes, we do make progress in this life by his grace. In fits and starts, we make progress in this daily battle to die to ourselves. But it's also encouraging to know that it's not something that any of us will ever completely attain to in this life. We're never going to reach a point where we've arrived and like, oh, I'm not sending anymore. That's great. <laughs> Sadly, that, that's not going to happen in this life. So, so let's be practical. What, is, what does this look like? Daily dying to myself. It means some examples. Dying to my desperate need for the approval of others. It means dying to my needing other people to need me, to depend on me for my own sense of self-worth. It means dying to power and success, success as the world defines it. It means dying to my need to be right all the time and to win arguments. That's a hard one for me. Uh, Dying to my need to be in control. Dying to feeling entitled to having a pain-free life and a comfortable life. Um, it's what Radiohead called the, you know, that craving for no alarms and no surprises. <laughs> um, dying to my desire to keep my own schedule uninterrupted by other people's problems. Um, it means dying, as we talked about before, dying to, to my group being in power and influence in the surrounding culture. I think ultimately, in all these ways, and so many more, we could go on and on. It means dying to self. And that brings us finally to why. why. Why would anyone do this? What's the motive and, and the purpose behind Christ's call to come, take up his cross and, and die? I mean, this is all sounding kind of dark. I know that. Um, so, so you have to ask the question, the motivation question, right? The actor's question. What's my motivation? So the actors always ask, okay, why am I picking up this glass? Why am I saying this line? What's my internal motivation? Christians, we need to train ourselves to ask that question too. All right, I see Jesus asking me to do this, so why? What's my motivation? In a word, it's love. It's love. We follow Jesus where he has gone before us 
even though it might lead through discomfort and suffering and, and even different forms of death, we do it out of love for him who first loved us. So this is the key right here, that we're called and empowered to die to ourselves, not just out of some cold sense of duty. It's not just like, well, I've got to check that box. It's something I've got to do. I've got to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I've got to work up this, this special feeling within me. It's something that he even empowers us to do. We don't do it out of a cold sense of duty. We do it out of love. Love is the only true motive for dying to ourselves. It's what Jesus himself taught us, isn't it? When Jesus said um, a few chapters later from here, he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. It's love. And then he goes on a few verses later, which I love, and he says, you are my friends. <laughs> Greater love has no one than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. So you see, Jesus' death, Jesus is the grain of wheat which falls into the earth and dies. And so it's in his death, in a way, he, he leads the way. And so we follow him, not, and don't miss this, we don't follow him in that so that we can try to somehow atone for our own sins or try to add in any way to the unique work that he did for us on the cross. But our own small ways, and dying to our own selfishness in a million different ways, we do follow him out of love and for our joy. It's for our joy. I, I can't know this for certain, but I suspect that a seed is only truly happy when it's buried in some good, rich soil. Because that's where it's made to, to sprout into and, and the life it was made for. And that's the key. The seed is happiest in the dark, damp pressure of the earth because that's where it was made to flourish. See, so you and I were made, brothers and sisters in Christ, we were made to flourish and to thrive as creatures made in God's image, belonging to the King. And we can only do that when we're united with Christ. Because when you're, you're united with him, yes, you're united in his death, but then also in his resurrection. He empowers us by his spirit to die to sin more and more and to live unto righteousness and to know his deep joy that only he can give in spite of what your outward circumstances might be. Jesus tells us this elsewhere, um, that, that he's the, we're the branches, you know, we're just the little branches and he's the vine. And so once we've been, we've been grafted into him, then his life-giving blood is what begins to course through our veins. And that's really the only way that we can know this, this true life and joy. That the only power strong enough to help us die to ourselves day by day comes from him. him who, he who first loved us. And then creates the spark of, of love within our own hearts to follow him in response. So why do we heed this call to come and die? The, the motive is love. The very love he was glad to, to, to give us any time when we ask for it. And the purpose of it, the end result of why we do this, Jesus tells us here in, in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. You see, the reward, the honor, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is just 
just to be with him, just to be with Christ. By virtue of following Christ, we, his servants, by virtue of following him, we are where he is. And so to be welcomed into the presence of the king is to bask in his glory and honor and and to be honored in a way ourselves. So we're wrapping up with this. Um, To be with God is the goal of human existence. That's the whole thing in a nutshell, to be with God. We were separated from him because of our sin and rebellion, but Christ made a way for us to be reunited. Um, maybe you've heard that, the famous Westminster Catechism question and answer. It says, man's chief end or goal, mankind's chief goal is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See how the glorifying and the enjoying, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Um, you, and you really can't enjoy a person from a distance either, can you? you know, to, to love someone is to long to be with that person. And so to love Christ and to follow hard after him is to long for fellowship, for communion with him. And though he might lead us through difficult times, um, learning day by day what it looks like to, to die to ourselves, even though he maybe even leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to fear, right? Nothing to fear because he's with us and we are with him. That's the story. That story of a lover seeking and reuniting with his beloved is really it's the whole story of the world. And it's the whole, the whole story of the Bible, too. Um, it's spread across the pages of the Bible, and we can actually just look at the bookends. The very first book in Genesis, you see that. Remember how Adam and Eve were in the garden with God, right? And, and they would walk and talk with God as he would come and, and commune with them. Walk, that's a fancy churchy sounding word for just be, be with. <laughs> but he would, he would be with them in the cool of the evening as they walked and talked with them. Of course, they sinned and, and rebellion against God, and so that, that proximity, that friendship, it was broken by that sin, and so they were exiled from the garden. So that's the, the, the first bookend of the, of the Bible. Go to the very end, the, the second to last chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 1, where he's describing this amazing scene of the end of how God wraps all this story up. And we see how everything's been restored and renewed, um, and there's no more sin or, or anything anymore. And we hear a loud voice coming from God's throne saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them. As their God, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love that verse. Um, God's gonna—he's gonna touch your face. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. So Bonhoeffer reminded us: Yes, um, when Christ calls a man. He bids him to come and die, but it's a joyous death because it results in real life, a life with God. And it's real and lasting life. It's real and lasting and intimate friendship with love itself, with the triune God. Um, it starts right now, but it goes on forever. 
Please pray with me. Lord, uh, we long for that day. But until then, we need you to help us. Lord, it's so hard uh, to, to do this, to die to ourselves. We, we are, we're just selfish, self-interested creatures, and it's um, difficult, and we need your help. But thank you, Lord, that you come running to the rescue to help us bit by bit, step by step, and following hard after Jesus. Thank you for loving us. We pray that you would grow our love for you and for your body in this church um, and for a dying world. We pray that you would do this for your glory. Amen.